Hello, and welcome to Overcoming, the companion podcast for my new book, After Trauma. This is Allie Rothrock. Welcome. So, so far in this podcast series, we have done episode one, which was an intro, sort of overview on this book and my writing process and how the book came to be. Then last week we did chapter one, which is forgive yourself for not seeing it coming. That is the theme of that chapter. And then this week we are getting into chapter two, work to find coherence in your life story. And as I said before, each of these chapters is themed around a lesson that I learned in my overcoming as I found my way through my after. And so each chapter really tells the story of that lesson sort of through the lens of my experiences. And then as we get into later chapters, I include other people's experiences as well. So I want to start, and you'll hear me flipping through the pages of this book. I want to start with the quote that I chose for chapter two. All the quotes that are chosen in here were chosen really carefully and specifically. I had easily, you know, three or four times as many quotes that I loved and could have seen fitting into this book in a myriad of ways, but each one that actually made it in is uh, very meaningful to me in one way or another. And so this one I chose from the late Rachel Held Evans, what a comfort to know that God is a poet. And the very, very last line of this book um, at the end of the last chapter revisits that, that line that Rachel said that I love and my best friend Hannah and I, uh, text each other G-I-A-P a lot or say it um, and that means God is a poet and to us that means beautiful things are happening in our lives all the time whether or not we realize it Um, and that is quite comforting so what a comfort to know that God is a poet. Now the beginning of this chapter is one of my favorite pieces in this whole book. I had so much fun writing it. In a previous podcast series I did called Over a Cup, each episode of that, which you can still find on Spotify, each of those episodes centers around an event, um, or at least most of them. So I was doing research on events that happened. So date, time, what happened, who was there, things like that. Um, But it was really, really fun. Like it does something to my brain when I get to research an event and I know, you know, most of the events that I had researched were not great for the people involved. Um, But from like a research and writing perspective, I really enjoy diving into history and historical events. And so the Johnstown flood that happened on May 31st, 1889 has been sort of a constant presence in my life. (laughs) Let me explain that. Um... As I wrote in this chapter, I first visited the Johnstown Flood Museum at Memorial. There's various sites around that town. Uh, When I was in seventh grade, I believe, on just a field trip to learn about history. And I would go on to revisit that site uh, a couple more places with family members and things like that over over time. Um, But so I wrote about the Johnstown Flood and what happened. And I, I remember... I just loved this piece. I loved, you know, I read so many books and and watched so many documentaries and just really pulled out like the bare minimum amount of information to at least give a cohesive story and pulled through 
the threads of people's afters, you know, talking about the choices that people made during and right after the flood, Clara Barton arriving and and all of that. But I loved writing about this and it was really fascinating to go back and, you know, the, the terrible wave quote that's there in that first paragraph, it says the terrible wave, quote, terrible wave, traveled down through the mountain with the force of Niagara Falls, picking up buildings and horses, locomotives and barbed wire, a 75-foot-tall viaduct, and human beings alive, dead, and dying. And if you look into this incident, uh, yes, there was, as I wrote, an ungodly amount of rain that caused the man-made South Fork Dam to burst, and for the, you know, man-made Lake Connemaw, which had just basically been built up in the mountains, um, to burst, but it wasn't just the rain. It wasn't just the rain that caused this catastrophe. Um, Lake Connemaw was, like I said, man-made, and it was built um, basically so wealthier people in the upper class could have water, um, a lake to look out on and boat on and fish on as they were at their their summer homes um, up in this area of the town. And because it cost a lot to maintain the dam, and mostly because uh, they had put sort of spillways to help with any overflow so the dam wouldn't break, fish were escaping through those sort of little holes um, that were there intentionally to help maintain the structure of the dam. And so since fish were escaping through those holes and people did not like that they could not catch as much fish as they wanted, those holes were plugged. And so that is was just one in a series of choices that led to this catastrophe. And so writing about this, I really, I really loved, I loved learning about you know, Alma Hall, where 264 stunned survivors shivered there that night, where babies were born, where doctors with no medical supplies or light, doctors with broken ribs delivering babies while they just prayed that the building would not catch on fire or break apart around them. I mean, it's so hard to fathom something like this happening and just the complete and total destruction. I mean, it was like that place got wiped off the face of the earth. And just wow, this incident really stands out in my brain as something that was really impactful for me as soon as I learned about it. And I loved the thread that I could draw for myself learning about this and sort of the light bulb that it ignited in my brain even back then. I mean, I remember being mesmerized like never in my life standing in some of those museums and memorials and seeing like I remember in one of the museums there's the factory logbook where in like beautiful script penmanship you know you see like May 29th blah 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 injury to a hand you know work continuing on as normal or what it is like it's people just keeping a log there were no computers there was nothing like that like what happened in the factory on that day and I remember seeing you know what they wrote on May 31st and how they documented, like they did their own written documentation, which is a theme in my life of that catastrophe. And then that logbook, which is, you know, paper and ink survived the flood to see it. So all of that was just really impactful for me. And I also think was the beginnings of the concept of being a first responder to me was probably started, you know, around that time, or at least going to that Memorial in seventh grade was really formative for that reason. So um, I also thought it was really interesting on page 41, 
In the middle, I say, five days later, Clara Barton arrived, having recently established the American branch of the International Red Cross. While tending to those in town, she noted a profound melancholia among survivors, associated with an absolute disregard of the future. Yet it was the belief of the men put in charge that there was no sense dwelling on the thing, and that doing so was bad for the spirits. And so I thought that was really interesting, that, you know, 1889 concept of post-traumatic stress was just basically we don't need to dwell on it. Um, And that was obviously a a thread that I continue to pull through this, this book. And then on page 42 and 43, I guess basically mostly on 43, I really wanted to include in here my experiences in high school theater and how much, I mean, still to this day, the theater and the people I met in it and the art that we got to create together, how much that means to me and how much it meant to me back then. This piece about the high school theater was actually a lot, lot longer. And my editor thought that the entire piece wasn't necessary. And it was really important to me to have at least a little bit in there. Um, and so I pulled out sort of the two chap- the two paragraphs that meant the most to me. And that's what ended up in the book. And I love this piece that I wrote. I remember where I was. I was on like a weekend getaway with my husband and I was working on this. And I wrote... Um, On stage, everyone acted in ways that I could understand and in ways that were predictable. On stage, the words lights up and end scene signaled the open and the close. I could see pain or trauma coming because it was written into the script and got resolved by the time the curtain fell. Then the actors would come up to the front of the stage for curtain call smiling, free of the strife and the stories they had just lived. There were no leftover hardships, no carried over pains, no ripples. I loved the order of it, the simplicity of it, the magic of it. I felt a shielded protection when I was telling other people's stories. I didn't have to think about the story I was actively living, the one I did not yet have words for. And then the very next sentence says, the old auditorium building sat in a big dip in the earth. And fun fact, this chapter used to be called Dip in the Earth. And when we were sort of restructuring this book and, and theming each chapter around a really direct to the reader lesson on overcoming, I loved the chapter titles that I had chosen so much that in every chapter, whatever the phrase was that was the chapter title, um, I put it in the, the, the meat of the, the chapter somewhere. Um, like there was another chapter that was called Tethered. And I made sure that the word tethered was in that chapter somewhere. So it was just like a little way for me to keep to keep that that essence in there. So yeah, this chapter used to be called Big Dip, uh, Dip in the Earth. And then when we get into 46, page 46, I started to write for the first time about dreams. Um, I say this in the chapter, and I mean it's super true in my work with first responders these days. I often hear panic when they tell me that sights or sounds from memorable calls are showing up in their dreams. And this is super common for just trauma survivors in general. And I was looking for a great source that I could cite or some education that I could provide here. And I chose to cite author David Eagleman uh, in his book Livewire. And I loved that book. I've read it a bunch of times. I would highly recommend it to anyone who wants to learn about 
just the ways that our brains grow and change over our lives and how marvelously adaptable and flexible our brains are. They, we don't come out with a fully formed organ in our mind that, that, you know, in our head that doesn't ever change. It really adapts to our lives and that is great news for trauma survivors. And so the book is also really accessible. Like you don't need to be a neuroscience or have a PhD to read it. So I would definitely recommend that book to anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about that. And then we get into me graduating from high school and getting to that trip that I took um, to the San Francisco Fire Department. And if you've read Where Hope Lives, this is, you know, detailed there. And it just really explains how incredibly important and impactful and and formative it was for me to be so received by this female fire chief that I had just reached out to because my mom saw her in an interview and I so desperately needed to know that someone like her existed. I needed to know that it was possible to survive in the job that we both loved. And now that I know a ton of fire chiefs and understand their demands of their job and their busy work schedules more, I can't imagine like running a department as big as hers. I just don't know how she found the time to talk with me, but she did and invited me out there and I was able to meet like every female firefighter that was working that day in in all the you know dozens and dozens of stations that they had. And I was really welcomed. And for the first time, I was in a firehouse and felt safe. And I didn't realize how how not true that was for me until I saw that I was able to have a different type of experience. And I love San Francisco in the depths of my soul. For everything that they did for me, um, just their existence gave me so much peace. Um, But when I came back to my hometown and I explore this on page 51, I then saw what the fire service could be, how good it could be. um, And it sort of made it harder and sadder and more confusing. um, Like, why did I have to get so unlucky to find the environment that I did in the very beginning? But San Francisco kept me on the path. And for them, I will forever be so grateful. And then on page 52 is one of, uh, another one of my favorite bits of this book. So I guess chapter two has Johnstown Flood. And it has just a brief overview and some quotes um, from author Terry Gents, whose book Strange Piece of Paradise is one that I read maybe once a year. I just sort of gravitate towards it and read it all the way through. If you look her up on YouTube, there's a really interesting uh, shorter documentary that was made where I pulled some of these quotes from, and I'm just so captivated by Terry and her experience and what she did to get her own own form of justice for what happened to her. And Terry gave me some additional words that I didn't have for my experience. And on page 52, I say, In an interview talking about her book, Strange Piece of Paradise, author Terry Gents calls this an easy forgiveness, a cheap kind of grace. And I was talking about my experience of sort of automatically forgiving people for what they did to me simply because I did not yet have the energy to be as angry as I deserve to be. And as Terry said, this is an easy forgiveness, a kind of cheap grace. It was cheap grace and a forgiveness that they did not earn or ask for. And therefore, I did not need to give it to them. But I understand, like Terry says, and I say this later on down, 
This method of retelling the pain separate from the one who caused it was an act of self-preservation. And Terry did that. She would tell the story of her attempted murder, this random act of violence, while she was camping with a friend of this man who drove his pickup truck on top of their tent and attacked them both with an axe. And they survived with deficits. But people would say, like, what happened to the guy? Who is he? Like, is he in jail? And Terry would say, I don't think I don't think much about him. I don't think much about him. That's that easy forgiveness. That's that kind of cheap grace. And I went on a journey similar to Terry's only in the way that I it, it, I needed time to be able to feel the anger that I deserve to feel and be okay with that anger and reevaluate my relationship to the emotion of anger because it is not a bad thing. It is a motivator. Um, angry to the point of self-destruction is not healthy, but justified anger that motivates you to try to make change is where I needed to get to, and that just took me, it took me a while. And so I really enjoyed hearing Terry's story and she has such a beautiful beautiful way with words that even if you just want to read a book that's really well written I would recommend Strange Piece of Paradise and then I talked about you know the next sort of piece is seeing myself to where hope lives my first book and it talks about how I started navigating the really powerful desire to do something bigger with my story than just carry it myself. And how I went back through my first 20 or so journals and just started pulling out the events and conversations and calls that felt really significant to me. And I remember that my my motivation at the time, this was in 2008-ish, that I didn't really like myself all the way. Um, I've always been a confident person. I've always had self-confidence. But there were parts of me that had just become really hateful and angry in an unhealthy way, angry in a not helpful way, and just full of hate and rage for people who did not care. My hate and rage was not changing their life at all, but it was really, really eating away at me. And so... Writing Where Hope Lives really was like my intent was to try to get back to a version of myself that I liked. And I did that. It just looked differently and took a different, took me on a different journey than I was expecting. Um, And then I just talked about, you know, it's so funny to look back now and see all that's happened and how far I've come and I'm holding After Trauma in my hands, a hardcover, beautifully bound book um, that just is so far from the self-published, you know, version of Where Hope Lives that I did, uh, that I made happen in 2010. But I, I, I look back at this time with a fondness now, even though it seemed never-ending and, and hard at the time because I was working from sunup to sundown at Starbucks and waitressing just to try to get enough money to publish and, and print copies of books. There are a lot more options now to self-publish a book, but back then um, it was really expensive and it took a long time. And so, you know, it took me a lot of time and a lot of intention to do that. But then 
there it was. I had a book with my name on it, which was Sixth Grade Allie's Dream. So when I was 21 years old, I, I had accomplished that. And then it was sort of like, what's next? And so after Where Hope Lives was published, I was still like working at a, at Starbucks and I was waitressing and I lived in a college town um, where, you know, there are a lot of bars and restaurants as there are in a lot of towns, but especially in that in that college town. And I would have this experience where I would be like I would close Starbucks or I would close the the restaurant and it would be really late or maybe even into the wee hours in the morning. And I'd be like walking back to my car and I would be passed by like a group of guys who were drunk or smelled like alcohol or even just walking past a bar and seeing guys inside drinking. I would get really uncomfortable and nauseous and like jittery and just had like a really strong aversion to all of that which I did not know at the time, like alcohol, specifically men drinking that I didn't know, specifically the smell of alcohol was a big, big trigger in my brain. And as I talked about last week, I mentioned shame in chapter one. And then on page 59, I quote the indomitable Liz Plank, cannot recommend her book for the love of men more. It's another book that I revisit often. Liz says, shame is not just a feeling. It's a barrier to functioning. And every time I would feel what I now know is a trigger, I would have this feeling of embarrassment, of shame, of I'm doing something wrong. Or maybe even a feeling that I couldn't put words to. It was just a feeling. And it was that feeling of shame. And then on page 59, I get into talking about triggers. This is something that I talk about often in my work with trauma survivors or when I speak. Um, It comes up a lot. And I just, again, I love what Liz said so succinctly. Shame is not just a feeling. It's a barrier to functioning. When when that is where you go, when, when shame is what sort of stopping you from your healing process, that's sort of where we get stuck. And triggers are just so, (laughs) they're so tough because your body does not know that you are not back in that environment, back in that experience. And sometimes you don't even know what triggered you, which makes it harder to feel like you have any say over what happens to your body, which is a theme with trauma survivors, especially sexual assault survivors. We need to feel like our bodies and, and, and we are on the same team and triggers make that really, really tough. Later on, I talk about doing my really first speaking engagement uh, back at the college where I had just graduated from. And I remember that talk really clearly. Um, This was probably, yeah, 2010, early 2011. And like Where Hope Lives was brand new. And I just had no idea that in the next decade I would do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of talks. I'm um, just starting back with that first one. And I talk about how I had joined another firehouse, which I felt really called to do, and how I was dealing with triggers every time I would go there, not knowing that that's what it was. And again, like looking back at it now, it's so clear, but, but I was so used to feeling uncomfortable and unsafe and not great in firehouses that feeling the effects of triggers it just was normal it was normal to feel that bad um 
And then I talk about the experience that I had that really sort of solidified this split. You know, I say trauma separates by design and on page 64, I can see, I can see when that, that split was sort of solidified and I, I came up with these words for it. I said, I saw myself walking around the giant warehouse of my mind and systematically shutting off lights. And then as the chapter begins to conclude on page 65, the paragraph that starts towards the top, I can see now how much I missed out on during that time in my life because I was so busy grappling with the cage and the consequences of refusing it. That paragraph, um, sort of this concept of forgive yourself for, for what you missed out on or you have to grieve what you missed out on or you have to acknowledge what you missed out on, that used to be the chapter title And as I wrote and as we continue to work on this, this concept of coherence, you have to find coherence in your life story became much bigger and much overarching. But I still wanted to have that, those couple sentences in there to just say it's okay and and necessary sometimes to acknowledge the things you missed out on. I, not that many of us want to go back to high school, but I, I can never go back and have the carefree, high school experience that would have been lovely to have. Like I can never go back and do my first experience at college as a different, less burdened version of myself. And it's okay. And I definitely needed in the past to be sad about that, to write about it, to say, here's what I could have done or here's what I could have experienced if I wouldn't have been so burdened all the time. That's an important thing to allow ourselves to do. And then as the chapter concludes, we come to our second piece of reflection and action for this theme work to find coherence in your life story and here's what it says is there a part of your life story you have yet to say out loud is there an experience you haven't been able to rectify in your mind are there experiences you missed out on while you were busy surviving allow yourself time to acknowledge and then grieve those losses it doesn't take away from where you are now was there an event that impacted you in ways you haven't fully acknowledged to yourself Gently challenge yourself to see around any shame you might have attached to those experiences. It does not belong on your shoulders. I invite you to make a timeline of your life to literally see that the difficult periods did not end you. The version of yourself reading this right now is alive, and that is solid enough of a foundation to begin again. Write out your timeline or think it through until it's clear. That brings us to the end of chapter two of my new book, After Trauma. This is Allie Rothrock. Get the book wherever you get your books. And we will see you next week for chapter three. Your struggle is a tunnel, not a cave. See you next week. Bye.